In the Vault by H.P. Lovecraft Dedicated to C.W. Smith, from whose suggestion the central situation is taken. Written the 18th of September, 1925. First published in The Tryout, Volume 10, Number 6, November 1925. There is nothing more absurd, as I view it, than the conventional association of the homely and the wholesome, which seems to pervade the psychology of the multitude. Mention a bucolic, Yankee setting, a bungling and thick-fibred village undertaker, and a careless mishap in a tomb, and no average reader could be brought to expect more than a hearty, albeit grotesque, phase of comedy. God knows, though, that the prosy tale which George Birch's death permits me to tell has in its aspects beside which some of our darkest tragedies are light. Birch acquired a limitation and changed his business in 1881, yet never discussed the case when he could avoid it. Neither did his old physician, Dr. Davies, who died years ago. It was generally stated that the affliction and shock were results of an unlucky slip, whereby Birch had locked himself for nine hours in the receiving tomb of Peck Valley Cemetery, escaping only by crude and disastrous mechanical means. But while this much was undoubtedly true, there were other and blacker things which the man used to whisper to me in his drunken delirium towards the last. He confided in me because I was his doctor, and because he probably felt the need of confiding in someone else after Davis died. He was a bachelor, and wholly without relatives. Birch, before 1881, had been the village undertaker of Peck Valley, and was a very calloused and primitive specimen, even as such specimens go. The practices I heard attributed to him would be unbelievable today, at least in a city. And even Peck Valley would have shuddered a bit had it known the easy ethics of its mortuary artist in such debatable matters as the ownership of costly laying-out apparel invisible beneath the casket's lid, and the degree of dignity to be maintained in posing and adapting the unseen members of lifeless tenants to containers not always calculated with sublimest accuracy. Most distinctly, Birch was lax, insensitive, and professionally undesirable. Yet I still think he was not an evil man. He was merely crass of fibre and function, thoughtless, careless, and licorice, as his easily avoidable accident proves. And without that modicum of imagination which holds the average citizen within certain limits fixed by taste. Just where to begin Birch's story I can hardly decide, since I am no practised teller of tales. I suppose one should start in the cold December of 1880, when the ground froze and the cemetery delvers found they could dig no more graves till spring. Fortunately, the village was small and the death rate low, so that it was possible to give all of Birch's inanimate charges a temporary haven in the single, antiquated receiving tomb. The undertaker grew doubly lethargic in the bitter weather and seemed to outdo even himself in carelessness. Never did he knock together flimsier and ungainlier caskets or disregard more flagrantly the needs of the rusty lock on the tomb door which he slammed open and shut with such nonchalant abandon. 
At last, the spring thaw came, and graves were laboriously prepared for the nine silent harvests of the grim reaper which waited in the tomb. Birch, though dreading the bother of removal and internment, began his task of transference one disagreeable April morning, but ceased before noon because of a heavy rain that seemed to irritate his horse, after having laid but one mortal tenement to its permanent rest. That was Darius Peck, the nonagenarian, whose grave was not far from the tomb. Birch decided that he would begin the next day with little old Matthew Fenner, whose grave was also nearby, but actually postponed the matter for three days, not getting to work till Good Friday, the 15th. Being without superstition, he did not heed the day at all, though ever afterward he refused to do anything of importance on that fateful sixth day of the week. Certainly, the events of that evening greatly changed George Birch. On the afternoon of Friday, April the 15th, then, Birch set out for the tomb with horse and wagon to transfer the body of Matthew Fenner. Though he was not perfectly sober, he subsequently admitted. Though he had not then taken to the wholesale drinking by which he later tried to forget certain things. He was just dizzy and careless enough to annoy his sensitive horse, which as he drew it viciously up at the tomb, neighed and pawed and tossed its head, much as on that former occasion when the rain had vexed it. The day was clear, but a high wind had sprung up, and Birch was glad to get to shelter as he unlocked the iron door and entered the side hill vault. Another might not have relished the damp, odorous chamber with the eight carelessly placed coffins, but Birch in those days was insensitive and was concerned only in getting the right coffin for the right grave. He had not forgotten the criticism aroused when Hannah Bixby's relatives, wishing to transport her body to the cemetery in the city whither they had moved, found the casket of Judge Capwell beneath her headstone. The light was dim, but Birch's sight was good, that he did not get Asaph Sawyer's coffin by mistake. Although it was very similar, he had indeed made that coffin for Matthew Fenner, but he had cast it aside at last, as too awkward and flimsy, in a fit of curious sentimentality aroused by recalling how kindly and generous the little old man had been to him during his bankruptcy five years before. He gave old Matt the very best his skill could produce, but was thrifty enough to save the rejected specimen, and to use it when Asaph Sawyer died of a malignant fever. Sawyer was not a lovable man, and many stories were told of his almost inhuman vindictiveness and tenacious memory for wrongs, real or fancied. To him, Birch had felt no compunction in assigning the carelessly made coffin, which he now pushed out of the way in his quest for the Fenner casket. It was just as he recognised old Matt's coffin that the door slammed to in the wind, leaving him in a dusk even deeper than before. The narrow transom admitted only the feeblest of rays, and the overhead ventilation funnel virtually none at all, so that he was reduced to a profane fumbling as he made his halting way among the long boxes towards the latch. In this funereal twilight, he rattled the rusty handles pushed at the iron panels, and wondered why the massive portal had grown so suddenly recalcitrant. 
In this twilight too, he began to realise the truth and to shout loudly, as if his horse outside could do more than neigh an unsympathetic reply. For the long neglected latch was obviously broken, leaving the careless undertaker trapped in the vault, a victim of his own oversight. The thing must have happened at about 3.30 in the afternoon. Birch, being by temperament phlegmatic and practical, did not shout long, but proceeded to grope about for some tools which he recalled seeing in the corner of the tomb. It is doubtful whether he was touched at all by the horror and exquisite weirdness of his position. But the bald fact of imprisonment so far from the daily paths of men was enough to exasperate him thoroughly. His day's work was sadly interrupted, and unless chance presently brought some rambler hither, he might have to remain all night or longer. The pile of tools soon reached, and a hammer and chisel selected. Birch returned over the coffins to the door. The air had begun to be exceedingly unwholesome. But to this detail he paid no attention as he toiled, half by feeling at the heavy and corroded metal of the latch. He would have given much for a lantern or a bit of candle, but lacking these, bungled semi-sightlessly as best he might. When he perceived that the latch was hopelessly unyielding, at least to such meagre tools and under such tenebrous conditions as these, Birch glanced about for other possible points of escape. The vault had been dug from a hillside, so that the narrow ventilation funnel in the top ran through several feet of earth, making this direction utterly useless to consider. Over the door, however, the high, slit-like transom in the brick façade gave promise of possible enlargement to a diligent worker. Hence, upon this his eyes long rested as he racked his brains for means to reach it. There was nothing like a ladder in the tomb, and the coffin niches on the sides and rear, which Birch seldom took the trouble to use, afforded no ascent to the space above the door. Only the coffins themselves remained as potential stepping stones, and as he considered these, he speculated on the best mode of arranging them. Three coffin heights, he reckoned, would permit him to reach the transom, but he could do better with four, so he began to compute how he might most suitably use the eight to rear a scalable platform four deep. As he planned, he could not but wish that the units of his contemplated staircase had been more securely made. Whether he had imagination enough to wish they were empty is strongly to be doubted. Finally, he decided to lay a base of three parallel with the wall to place upon this two layers of two each and upon these a single box to serve as a platform. This arrangement could be ascended with a minimum of awkwardness and would furnish the desired height. Better still, though, he would utilise only two boxes of the base to support the superstructure, leaving one free to be piled on top in case the actual feat of escape required an even greater altitude. And so the prisoner toiled in the twilight, heaving the unresponsive remnants of mortality with little ceremony as his miniature Tower of Babel rose course by course. Several of the coffins began to split under the stress of handling, and he planned to save the stoutly built casket of little Matthew Fenner for the top, in order that his feet might have as certain a surface as possible. In the semi-gloom, he trusted mostly to touch, 
to select the right one, and indeed came upon it almost by accident, since it tumbled into his hands as if through some odd volition, after he had unwittingly placed it beside another on the third layer. The tower at length finished, and his aching arms rested by a pause during which he sat on the bottom step of his grim device. Birch cautiously ascended with his tools and stood abreast of the narrow transom. The borders of the space were entirely of brick, and there seemed little doubt that he could shortly chisel away enough to allow his body to pass. As his hammer blows began to fall, the horse outside whinnied in a tone which may have been encouraging and may have been mocking. In either case, it would have been appropriate, for the unexpected tenacity of the easy-looking brickwork was surely a sardonic commentary on the vanity of mortal hopes, and the source of a task whose performance deserved every possible stimulus. Dusk fell, and found Birch still toiling. He worked largely by feeling now, since newly gathered clouds hid the moon, and though progress was still slow, he felt heartened at the extent of his encroachments on the top and bottom of the aperture. He could, he was sure, get out by midnight, though it is characteristic of him that this thought was untinged with eerie implications, undisturbed by oppressive reflections on the time, the place, and the company beneath his feet. He philosophically chipped away the stony brickwork, cursing when a fragment hit him in the face, and laughing when one struck the increasingly excited horse that poured near the cypress tree. In time, the hole grew so large that he ventured to try his body in it now and then, shifting about so the coffins beneath him rocked and creaked. He would not, he found, have to pile another on his platform to make the proper height, for the hole was on exactly the right level to use as soon as his size might permit. It must have been midnight at least when Birch decided he could get through the transom. Tired and perspiring despite many rests, he descended to the floor and sat a while on the bottom box to gather strength for the final wriggle and leap to the ground outside. The hungry horse was neighing repeatedly and almost uncannily, and he vaguely wished it would stop. He was curiously unelated over his impending escape and almost dreaded the exertion for his form had the indolent stoutness of early middle age. As he remounted the splitting coffins, he felt his weight very poignantly, especially when, upon reaching the topmost one, he heard that aggravated crackle which bespeaks the wholesale rending of wood. He had, it seems, planned in vain when choosing the stoutest coffin for the platform, for no sooner was his full bulk again upon it the rotting lid gave way, jouncing him two feet down on a surface which even he did not care to imagine. Maddened by the sound, or the stench, which billowed forth even to the open air, the waiting horse gave a scream that was too frantic for an A, and plunged madly off through the night, the wagon rattling crazily behind it. Birch, in his ghastly situation, was now too low for an easy scramble out of the enlarged transom, but gathered his energies for a determined try. Clutching the edges of the aperture, he sought to pull himself up, when he noticed a queer retardation in the form of an apparent drag on both his ankles. In another moment, he knew fear for the first time that night, for struggle as he would, 
he could not shake clear of the unknown grasp which held his feet in relentless captivity. Horrible pains, as of savage wounds, shot through his calves, and in his mind was a vortex of fright, mixed with an unquenchable materialism that suggested splinters. Loose nails, or some other attribute of breaking wooden box. Perhaps he screamed. At any rate, he kicked and squirmed frantically and automatically, whilst his consciousness was almost eclipsed in a half-swoon. Instinct guided him in his wriggle through the transom, and in the crawl which followed his jarring thud on the damp ground, he could not walk, it appeared, and the emerging moon must have witnessed a horrible sight as he dragged his bleeding ankles towards the cemetery lodge, his fingers his fingers clawing the black mould in brainless haste, and his body responding with that maddening slowness from which one suffers when chased by the phantoms of nightmare. There was evidently, however, no pursuer, for he was alone and alive when Armington, the lodgekeeper, answered his feeble clawing at the door. Armington helped Birch to the outside of a spare bed and sent his little son Edwin for Dr Davis. The afflicted man was fully conscious, but would say nothing of any consequence, merely muttering such as things as, Oh, my ankles! Let go! Or, Shut in the tomb! Then the doctor came with his medicine case, and asked crisp questions, and removed the patient's outer clothing, shoes and socks. The wounds, for both ankles were frightfully lacerated about the Achilles tendons, seemed to puzzle the old physician greatly, and finally, almost to frighten him. His questioning grew more than medically tense, and his hands shook as he dressed the mangled members, binding them as if he wished to get the wounds out of sight as quickly as possible. For an impersonal doctor, Davis's ominous and awestruck cross-examination became very strange indeed, as he sought to drain from the weakened undertaker every last detail of his horrible experience. He was oddly anxious to know if Birch was sure, absolutely sure, of the identity of that top coffin of the pile, how he had chosen it, how he had been certain of it as the Fenner coffin in the dusk, and how he had distinguished it from the inferior duplicate coffin of vicious Asaph Sawyer. Would the firm Fenner casket have caved in so readily? Davis, an old-time village practitioner, had of course seen both at the respective funerals, and indeed he had attended both Fenner and Sawyer in their last illnesses. He had even wondered, at Sawyer's funeral, how the vindictive farmer had managed to lie straight in a box so closely akin to that of the diminutive Fenner. After a full two hours, Dr Davis left, urging Birch to insist at all times that his wounds were caused entirely by loose nails and splintering wood. What else, he added, could ever in any case be proved or believed? But it well to say as little as could be said, and to let no other doctors treat the wounds. Birch heeded this advice all the rest of his life, till he told me his story, and when I saw the scars, ancient and whitened as they were, I agreed that he was wise in doing so. He always remained lame, for the great tendons had been severed, but I think the greatest lameness was in his soul.
his thinking processes, once so phlegmatic and logical, had become ineffaceably scarred. And it was too pitiful to note his response to certain chance allusions such as Friday, tomb, coffin, and words of less obvious connotation. His frightened horse had gone home, but his frightened wits never quite did that. He changed his business, but something always preyed upon him. It may have just been fear, and may have just been fear mixed with a queer belated sort of remorse for bygone crudities. His drinking, of course, on the aggravated, what it was meant to alleviate. When Dr. Davis left Birch that night, he had taken a lantern and gone to the old receiving tomb. The moon was shining on the scattered black fragments and marred façade, and the latch of the great door yielded readily to a touch from the outside. Steeled by old ordeals in dissecting rooms, the doctor entered and looked about, stifling the nausea of mind and body that everything in sight and smell induced. He cried aloud once, and a little later gave a gasp that was more terrible than a cry. Then he fled back to the lodge and broke all the rules of his calling by rousing and shaking his patient and hurling at him a succession of shuddering whispers that seared into the, the bewildered ears like the hissing of vitriol. It was Asaph's coffin, Birch, just as I thought. I knew his teeth, with the front ones missing on the upper jaw. Never, for God's sake, show those wounds. The body was pretty badly gone. But if ever I saw vindictiveness on any face, or former face, you know what a fiend he was for revenge. How he ruined old Raymond thirty years after their boundary suit, and how he stepped on the puppy that snapped at him a year ago last August. He was the devil incarnate, Birch. And I believe his eye-for-an-eye fury could beat old Father Death himself. God, what a rage! I'd hate to have it aimed at me. Why did you do it, Birch? He was a scoundrel, and I don't blame you for giving him a cast-aside coffin. But you always did go too damned far, well enough to skimp on the thing some way. But you knew what a little man old Fenner was. I'll never get the picture out of my head as long as I live. You kicked hard, for Asaph's coffin was on the floor, his head was broken in, and everything was tumbled about. I've seen sights before, but there was one thing too much here. An eye for an eye. Great heavens, Birch, but you got what you deserved. The skull turned my stomach, but the other was worse. Those ankles cut neatly off to fit Matt Fenner's cast-aside coffin. <laughs>